Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray you would open our hearts to hear and to live it out. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Welcome again this morning. So good to see you all here today. There's a, a key kind of overarching theme in this passage, which is that the presence of God lives within us by the power of the Holy Spirit. He fills us, and he also calls the world into the truth that Jesus is Lord. He fills us, and he calls the world into the truth that Jesus is Lord. And there's two main sections that we read this morning. The first, verses 1 to 7, talk about the Holy Spirit and these disciples of John the Baptist and the Spirit filling them. And the second passage has to do with the Holy Spirit and evil spirits, the Spirit transforming a city. And I want to look at both of those in turn. First, the Spirit filling in verses 1 to 7. Paul arrives in Ephesus, and he meets this band of disciples. And he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they respond, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. We have no idea about a Holy Spirit. We don't know what you're talking about, Paul. And Paul then asks, okay, so then what were you baptized into? What is it you're actually disciples of? Who is it you actually believe in? And they respond, we were baptized into the baptism of John. John the Baptist, that's in verse 3. Now, this brings up a, an important question, and Paul is, is trying to gauge something here in this group that he's met. Because we could read this passage as though this is a band of people who are already Christians, and therefore you could be a Christian and not have the presence of the Spirit in you. But I don't believe this is the case here, because Paul makes a an important point in his asking the question, and, and I, I want to put forward, these are not actually yet Christian believers. And I'm not alone in this. Uh, Gordon Fee and others uh, of our even Pentecostal scholars would note that the presence of the Spirit in the Gospel of Luke and in Luke's sequel here in Acts, the presence of the Spirit, it is what marks people as being part of the new people of God. It marks people off. In short, you can't be a Christian and not have the Spirit present in your life. And it's clear from the text that these are disciples of John and not yet of Jesus. That's why Paul asks, if you don't know who the Spirit is, who are you baptized into? Because clearly you weren't baptized into Jesus, is his point. John's baptism, which they were baptized into, was about preparing people for Jesus' coming, getting people ready to receive from God. And John was immersing people in the Jordan River. It was an act of repentance and cleansing. Even though Israel was back in their land, back home after exile, they were still in a sort of spiritual exile. They were far from God far from relationship with him, and they needed to be reminded of who they were, of the reality of their brokenness, and to be cleansed. And so that's what John's baptism was about. It was like a, a reenactment of the Red Sea for a new generation, people coming through the waters, 
before encountering God on Mount Sinai. That's what the Red Sea was about. And now here's a new generation going through the waters of baptism in the Jordan River to prepare them to meet with God once again, though this time not on Mount Sinai, but at the cross on Calvary, on a different mountain, they would meet God, preparing them to encounter him. And that's why Paul asked the question, who were you baptized into? Did you receive the Spirit? And in a sense, Paul's asking, are you Christians? Do you know Jesus? Which is indicated that they don't when they say we don't even know about a Spirit. We were only baptized into John's baptism. And as Paul starts to explain in verse 4 what John's baptism was about, that it was preparing them for Jesus, they are ready and willing on hearing this. Verse 5, they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They give their lives to him. They repent and believe. They're baptized into his name. And as Paul lays his hands on them, they receive the Spirit, much as the other believers have in Acts. And there's this, this confirmation of it with the audible signs of tongues and prophecy. And this description occurs only a few other times in Acts. You get it on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes, and then you have tongues and prophecy happening. You get it in the house of Cornelius when uh, the message goes out to the Gentile believers for the first time, and now you get it here. And at each time, it marks a significant step forward in the story of Acts. You have it at the initial birth of the church, again, the first Gentile converts, and now in the strategic city of Ephesus. Well, what do we do with that? What does that tell us about our life as Christians and as believers? As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of Ephesians 5.18, which says this about the Spirit. It says, do not get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And various Greek scholars point out that that phrase, be filled, in this verse is in the, the Greek present imperative tense. It means it has the connotation of continuous replenishment, to keep on being filled, an ongoing state of being filled. And, and one way to, to translate that verse, which is probably more accurate but a little clunkier in English, would be to say, keep on being filled with the Spirit. Go on being filled. This past summer, I was trying to grow grass, and I failed quite often in my grass growing. I tried to plant some wild flower seeds in one of our beds, and they grew sort of, but not well. And I had to continually water them if I was going to get any sort of flower or grass to grow. And if I failed uh, in my watering, they simply would not respond. There was a need to come and be filled again and again and again to keep that seed alive. And if I didn't repeatedly water it, it would simply dry up. And our scriptures use a similar term with regard to the Holy Spirit. For example, in Acts 13.52, we read that the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit the sense of ongoing refreshing, filling with the Spirit, which echoes Ephesians 5.18. In Acts 2, verse 4, back at the day of Pentecost, we read all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 4.31, talking about the same 
already spirit-filled believers, it says again that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Huh? I thought this was a one-time thing. No, it's not a one-time thing. This is an ongoing filling that God invites us to. Illustrating that idea from Ephesians 5.18, there is a, a stirring up or a refreshing, an ongoing filling of the Spirit for the Christian believer. It doesn't mean it's a new sort of baptism in the Spirit every time. 1 John 2.27 says, The anointing you received from him remains in you. It's a little more like 2 Timothy 1.6, which says, Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. Switching from water terminology of filling to fire terminology. Keep the fire stoked. Fan into flame the life of the Spirit within you. And so it seems from Scripture that we're called to this ongoing filling of God's presence within our lives. We're to be continually filled or refreshed in the Spirit. And if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives within you. That's very clear from the Bible. Romans 8, 9 says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. God's Spirit is present within us. But there is a call to continually receive, to be baptized, to be refreshed and filled with the Spirit as we go through the Christian life. And this happens especially here, remarkably, in this first encounter that these disciples have. But the question for us is, how do we keep on this sense of being filled or refreshed by the Spirit? And I think a part of it for us is a thirst for the Spirit of God in our lives. And I get that idea of thirst again because the water analogy is so good of being filled up. But I get it also from Jesus, from John 7, where Jesus stands up in the middle of the festival and says, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then John, as he's telling his gospel, says this, By this Jesus meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And notice that Jesus says that coming to him, thirsting for him, believing in him, is what causes the rivers of life to flow. John says that's the receiving of the Spirit. When we believe, we receive. And so come to Jesus and drink deeply of the life and the hope that he has for us. And part of that involves putting aside our own sin and our pride and with humility, coming afresh to the one who gives the water of life. And you may have been a Christian a long time and may have felt that infilling or baptizing of the Spirit at some point in your life, or maybe you feel, I've never really experienced that. But there is a call in our text this morning that we can come today and drink the water of life to receive afresh from God, to keep on being filled, as the Scripture says. And so that's the first section of our text, the Spirit filling, filling these disciples, filling you, filling me, making us alive, and our response to that is a deeper thirst for God to move 
in our hearts and in our world. Lord, would you come? And would I come unto you today? I'm thirsty for you, God. Would you refresh and refill me? That's the first part. And the second part illustrates another work of the Spirit, which is the Spirit transforming people's lives. We have the living presence of God here in the believers, and that comes into stark contrast with these false and evil spirits in the next section. We get this confrontation between those practicing magic arts and Paul and the presence of the true spirit in the lives of those who follow Jesus. And it's more than just a religious dispute. In fact, the rest of the chapter, if you go home and read it later, picks up the sense that this is actually an economic and political dispute as well uh, against those who follow Jesus and those who follow the Greek goddess Artemis. And it's going to uh, bring economics and politics into the foreground, like I said. So what's the issue? Well, God starts doing some extraordinary miracles through Paul. Paul's proclaiming Jesus. Verse 11 says God starts using Paul in some amazing ways, so much so that even seemingly insignificant objects, like a sweaty handkerchief or a, a work apron that would be tied around Paul's waist, for instance, could be used by God to cure illnesses or drive off evil spirits. And you think, that's pretty cool. I like that. But notice what the text doesn't do. It doesn't, for a moment, emphasize the object or the vessel as the source of power. It doesn't, for a moment, make a relic out of the handkerchief. Instead, we are told very clearly the source of the power is God alone not the thing that might have been used along the way. God is the subject of the verb. Not even Paul. God does these things through Paul, but the power comes from God alone. Not a person, not a relic. And in contrast to those authentic miracles, we read about this, this sort of feeble attempt by the seven sons of Sceva to try to mimic what Paul, uh, what God is doing through Paul, right? They're these Jewish exorcists. They're trying to drive out spirits by incantation, by magic. And they try to invoke the name of Jesus like it's a magical formula. Like if I just say this prayer just so and feel this certain thing in my heart and I drum up a certain emotion and I say the magic formula, the thing will happen for me. But it's clear they have no firsthand knowledge of Jesus. They don't actually know God. They're trying to use God for their own devices. And those attempts are shown to be sort of hilariously ineffectual, so much so that the evil spirit mocks them, says, I know Jesus. I know what Paul's doing. Who are you? What do you think you're doing? As Jesus is proclaimed and the Ephesians start to believe in God, something amazing starts to happen. They start to put aside their attempts at sorcery. And they voluntarily choose to burn their books. 
So now it's, it's a very public thing. Christianity is making a very public statement in a place we know that Ephesus uh, had sort of a commodity on magical artifacts. They were all about it. There's these Ephesian letters that you could get that were sort of incantations or spells that you could use to try and do stuff. It's a good chance that the books they're burning include those letters. And so now we've got them voluntarily. Paul doesn't force this. We've got new converts voluntarily saying, enough of this junk in my life. I want the real thing. I want Jesus. And they voluntarily burn their books. Now, we don't know exactly the cost of the, the books. Um, it's, it's, it's considerable. It's quite a bit. It's suggested, what we have here is it came to 50,000 pieces of silver, is what it says in the Greek. Now, if those are silver denarii, then each one's worth about a day's wage. So that's fairly significant, because that would be 50,000 days of work represented in the books. Uh, if you do the math, and different people do the math differently, but I did some of the math to try to figure it out. It, I mean, it ranges from all over the place, because there's also different coins that can be represented in the silver. There's a good chance it's worth millions. It's not like a couple thousand bucks of books. It's millions of dollars that are being voluntarily given up because of the transforming power of Jesus in these people's lives. It's hard to know for certain, but it's, it's a significant amount of money. So from Paul's powerful preaching, God's healing, God's uh, delivering people, and now this public book burning, we find that Christianity has been drawn right into the, the center of public life in Ephesus. And yet nothing, and I think this is what's key for us, no evil spirit, not Artemis, nor any religious or political or economic power is able to match the power of the Spirit of God to transform people's lives. So what are the implications for us? Just a couple short things as we think about what this means for us today. How do we live this out? I think one of the things that this passage really illustrates for us is that as human beings, we long for an encounter with the sacred, don't we? We long to connect with something meaningful, something powerful, something life-giving, and we can seek that in following a dramatic personality, a dramatic character, a, a, a certain leader like the disciples were as they, as they followed John the Baptist, who was quite an eccentric guy. We can seek that in following the latest movement or trend. We can also seek meaning in purpose in our work, whatever it is that we set our hand to, or participating in the culture of our day and seeking success and fame and meaning by what we accumulate for ourselves. Or we can seek it in our own sort of spiritual practice, seeking power and purpose in a in a sort of pseudo-religious experience like the seven sons of Sceva tried to do. But the passage is clear. We don't find true meaning or true life by following another person or in our work or in our pseudo-religious spiritualities. We only find true longing and life 
in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're called into life with him. And that's pictured in the baptism that happens that Paul invites them into. And it's pictured again in the infilling of the spirit of God's true life-giving presence coming to live within us. Any other attempts at a meaningful life, whether it's getting involved with false spirits, will prove self-destructive. And we don't need to be naive about evil in the world, that there are dark spiritual forces that exist, and there's cultures that are focused on greed and power and money and all the rest. But all of these promise only a false sense of salvation. Jesus calls us into real relationship with him, into finding real life and the real truth as we're filled afresh with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's those who are led by the Spirit and who truly know Jesus who can act in the name of Jesus. We're reminded that God's power is not a sort of impersonal force that we can manipulate to our own devices. Rather, God is the one who brings healing and who delivers us from evil and who brings us new life. And so rather than seeking false power through false spirits or any other attempt at a sort of new age spirituality, and rather than seeking only to follow the prominent leader of the day, our passage calls us to follow the risen Lord. Jesus, and to be filled afresh with the power of the Holy Spirit who fills us with new life and as we live and serve him begins to transform the society around us. And so let's pray to that end that we would experience a refreshing of the Holy Spirit in our lives and that as we seek to live for God and proclaim the gospel, it would make a difference in the public sphere and call people to repentance and to faith in God. Let's pray to that end. Why don't you stand with me? Lord, we thank you once again that you call us into life with yourself. Lord, that our, our faith as Christians is not simply a knowing you. It's not just an intellectual act. But Lord, you call us to be filled with your own presence the Father and the Son would make their home in us by the power of the Spirit. And Lord, we thank you that as we come thirsty this morning for you to move in our lives, you promise that springs of living water would flow. That that's the presence of the Spirit within us. And Lord, there's times where we feel you are distant. We feel like we are unsure if you are with us. And I just pray this morning, Jesus, over each one here, who knows you or is seeking to know you or is unsure, Lord, this morning that you would move by your spirit and bring that refreshing and that refilling that your word calls us to, that we would keep on being filled by the spirit, that we would not let our hearts grow dry, that we would fan into flame, that we would come thirsty, Lord, for you to move in our hearts and our lives. We pray for that spiritual renewal, that spiritual awakening to begin in us today. Lord, we also recognize that we live in a world that seeks to find meaning 
in all sorts of places. And we know, Lord, this morning, the truth that is our, 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 our greatest hungers and our greatest longings are satisfied only in you alone. And so we pray, Jesus, that you would use us to break through the clouds of darkness in our city where people have sought to find meaning and purpose in all sorts of other things. We pray that the truth of your gospel would be made clear to those that uh, don't yet know you. We pray, Lord, for those miracles that wake people up from apathy and complacency. We pray, Lord, for boldness to speak your word when we are in situations with those who don't know you. And we pray, Father, most of all, that you would draw people to yourself and that there would be such a hunger and a thirst for you, we'd be willing to even give up the things, perhaps even the expensive things, that would keep us uh, from engaging fully with you. And Lord, you know our hearts. I'm not going to start labeling things that we need to give up. But Lord, some of us struggle. There's things that consume our time that we make into idols. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, uh, each one individually, and call us more and more uh, unto yourself. We thank you, Lord, for your salvation life and the presence of your spirit within us. We pray, Lord, for a deeper uh, a refreshing and filling as we head into this week. And with the words you taught us, we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Before you go, receive this benediction. Children of God who are loved and redeemed through our Lord Jesus Christ. May you experience a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit today. And may you be used by God to transform the society in which you have been planted. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. We do love you. Go in peace. If you want prayer this morning, love to pray with you. And if you're new or visiting, do come and say hi. Otherwise, have a great week. We hope to see you next Sunday. Bless you guys. Take care.